Good morning, everybody. I deserve so much better than that. Thank you. You know, it just it never fails. Uh, I'll preach on something, and then God puts that very thing in my life. The, uh, I preached uh, last Sunday on joy from Matthew chapter 2, exceedingly great joy. And uh, I, I was challenged this week to, um, to live in God's joy. I think for Christmas Eve, I'll share just a moment on a sexual intimacy and marriage, if that's okay. Um, yeah. Turn, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. And we're going to get there in a, just a moment. I want to share with you and, um, a great prophecy, a great passage of Scripture. And I want to give a little bit of context to it. And first of all, I want to say about this before we, as you're turning, we will put that passage up on the screen in, in a moment. Um, sometimes we treat uh, the Old Testament. Uh, at best, we treat it like a lengthy preamble to the real Bible, to the New Testament. And at worst, uh, we treat it like a strange relic that's hard to understand. It, it comes to us from a, an unenlightened society. But I'm coming to appreciate more and more as I study Scripture, I'm coming to appreciate how the writers of the New Testament appreciated the old, how the apostles of the new appreciated the prophets of the old, how they saw the Old Testament um, as really in the entire books, the compendium, the composite of each and every book, as foretelling the Messiah. You and I, the popular expression today we say is uh, Jesus is the reason for the season. But the New Testament writers look back and they authenticated these prophecies when they occurred, but they, they had a great appreciation for the writers of the Old Testament. Do you know um, there are 322 direct prophecies that describe the character and the coming of Jesus Christ. Now think about that. In fact, I've shared with some of you uh, when I've gone through doubt. I know some of you today, certainly in a room this size, a lot of people out, a lot of college students gone, but uh, in a room this size with several hundred people, there has to be folks here today who uh, struggle and probably kind of have God on a shelf. You're, you're not sure. And I, I want to encourage you to, to, to open your heart how God could quicken faith, he could quicken belief in you and could give you uh, even understanding. As C.S. Lewis says, it's not a, a blind leap of faith. It's a, it's a step into the light. And one of the things that has helped me and, and helped me intellectually to, to believe in Jesus and to follow him is this reality of 322 prophecies. Now, I want to share this by way of analogy using a, a CIA illustration. In the field of counterintelligence, a double agent is an employee of a secret intelligence service whose primary purpose is to spy on a different target organization who, in fact, is a member of the target organization. Everybody got that? Right? Some of you are thinking, oh, I just finished finals. Don't make me think today, right? I don't get that either. But here's what I read about this week. If, a, if the CIA, if they arrange a meeting with a double agent... They uh, provide several steps that they want that agent to complete to ensure that they don't get the wrong guy. So it could be things like, uh, and when I say several things, specifically with the CIA, it's seven things. It could be something like this. Go, go to Jackson, and when you get there, call the CIA operative. Place the phone call at the following number. Then go to Fondren and find the trolley and hop on the trolley 
and ride around the block a few times. And then go to Sneaky Beans and get a pumpkin spiced latte. And after that, go over to Cheney Swellophonic and, and buy a shirt. And buy a black shirt. And the shirt on it needs to say, Jackson, boiled water alert. And then number six, go sit by a bench and put your right hand on the right side of that bench with your left hand on your left knee. Seven, wait till someone comes up and approaches you and they ask you where you're from. And when they ask you, you tell them you're from Tulsa, Oklahoma. Random, I know. But here's the point. With the CIA, they want to make sure they have their guy. And those are seven, wouldn't you agree, very specific things, and you can pretty much know. I mean, that kind of takes random out of it, doesn't it? I mean, that, that, I mean that, that lets them know, hey, this is our guy. Seven. Seven detailed, highly meticulous things. And with Jesus in Scripture, y'all, 322 really specific things. Now, uh, a lot of people, you would get up and walk out if I went through all 322 of them today, right? You're, you're scared. I got the pulpit today. Like, oh no, he's going to hit all 322 of them. I'll share five. Micah 5.2 tells us that this baby would be born in Bethlehem. In 2 Samuel 7, it says that he would be of the tribe of Judah, of the house of David. He says in Scripture in Malachi that he would, uh, be, he would be preceded by a prophet, that's John the Baptist, with the spirit of Elijah. In Zechariah, it uh, tells us in chapter 11, verse 13, that he would uh, be betrayed by 30 pieces of silver. And Isaiah, not the verse we're going to look at today, but Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6, tells us that he would die by hanging on a tree. Specific prophecies that have been authenticated, very detailed. Before we read this passage, a little history about really what's happening prior to this and in its context. This uh, was written in a, probably 700 to 750 before Christ. There was a superpower that was beginning to emerge. The, this group was known as the Assyrians, and they were Macdaddy. They were tough. The Assyrians were rising to the top. And the nations around them were getting very nervous. It happens today in the Middle East, right? It's, if, the, if the power gets out of whack, what do we do? America plays a role. We're not going to get political today, but trust me, we have our mind. The Secretary of State and Defense and all the smart people in Washington and beyond have their eye on the Middle East, and we play some part. It may not be the part you think we should play. Most of us aren't even smart enough to understand it, right? But we play some part, and one of the things that we look at is the what? The balance of power. And in that day, the balance of power was going toward heavily toward the Assyrians and the nations around them in their fear. They formed an alliance. And you have a king of Jerusalem named King Ahaz. That's A-H-A-Z. And the alliance formed and they went to this King Ahaz, and the, the king of Jerusalem, and they said, hey, we want you to be with us. We want you to join our alliance. We need you. And Ahaz, he liked the idea of the alliance because he too was fearful of the Assyrians, but he didn't want to join them. Evidently, there were some personality clashes or something, but he didn't join in with the alliance. He wasn't sure about them. It's kind of like some of you maybe, you, know, you like the business idea, you just don't like the partners in the business. And you think, man, these guys, maybe you've got evidence to prove it. These guys are kind of scumbaggish, and you're not going to join them because of that. 
And Ahaz had that hesitancy, but it was almost a, a choose your poison when the king of Assyria approached, went into Jerusalem and approached King Ahaz and said, hey, join with us. You join with us and you will be protected. And here you have these warring factions. Here you have a battle brewing and Ahaz, the king, the one who wanted to seek God, the one who was trying to find God in all of this. He doesn't know which way to turn. And God sends a messenger, the prophet Isaiah. Do you know this? And Isaiah, woe is me, here I am, send me, Lord. And God had a plan for Isaiah. When God sends a man or a woman, he calls them out. Probably not as dramatic as what happened with Isaiah, but I do believe that this is um, a prescriptive for all of us. When God calls you to something, you turn at some point inward and realize that you are unworthy. Isaiah's words, some of you know, in Isaiah 6, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. Woe is me. God called me to something? I bet if he is, it's something bigger than who you are. I bet if it is, you spend a moment, more than a moment, debilitated, maybe even depressed, just thinking, I, not me. I am not worthy. You know, in leading a church, sometimes we come alongside people and we say, for this leadership position, we don't think you're qualified. We, we think there's a, a season and this is not your season. We want to see you grow in this area. That's really important to do. I think most of you would agree with that. But oftentimes, more times than not, I find myself challenging you and saying you can do this. More specifically, you can't do this, but God can do this through you. I can't, but you can. And Isaiah gets this, this uh, rather King Ahaz gets this visit from someone that God had called out. And he, and he is basically saying, okay. I'm going to give you a sign, Isaiah tells Ahaz. And Ahaz says, I don't want a sign. Now, who would say that? Would you ever say that? I don't want a sign from God. I think if you show up at my doorstep and you're a prophet and you seem to be legit, you got a sign from God, I think, I, I think I'd explore that sign, wouldn't you? I mean, I'm looking for a sign. I mean, too much of my life I feel like I'm just blindly groping in the darkness, not knowing where to turn. God, what do you have for me? What lessons do you want me to learn? Where are you leading us as a church family? Pastor, husband, father, friend, what... God, I want a sign. But Ahaz says, I don't want a sign. And as I was studying it this week, I thought, wow. That's true of us, really. Because you see, a sign is when we, we know that God is giving us something. We know God is saying something to us. And Ahaz refused this because the sign he knew would require obedience. He would have to do something. I believe that we run from God. I believe that we stay out of his word. I, I think we uh, come to church in a real spotty way. I think we might avoid some friendships because we're trying to stay away from what God might tell us. God may tell you something. He may give you something that would require your obedience. Confess a sin. Have a hard conversation. Move out with someone before you're married. Marry that person. He may say something to you about a calling, a gifting that he wants to give you, something that he wants you to do. He may have a sign for you. He may be wanting to speak to you. But oftentimes we're resistant because we know it will require us to do something. Maybe we don't want to listen to God. The way that this ultimately played out is Ahaz ends up rejecting both offers. He doesn't join the alliance of nations that were afraid of the Assyrians. And he doesn't join the Assyrians immediately, but then he says, you know what, I'm jumping in with them. And isn't that like us when you're afraid and you're not sure, 
when you know uh, there's a threat in your life, you don't do the best thing. You do the thing, you, maybe you just throw in with what is most powerful. What, what's the most powerful thing? Not the best thing, not the most virtuous thing, not the thing that God is calling you to do, but you jump in with what you think is going to help you the fastest, what's going to give you the quickest fix. Ahaz eventually jumps in with the Assyrians, and he led himself into really a desolate place. He led himself and that nation into idolatry and ultimately into exile. Here's why I tell you all that. I tell you this because Ahaz was a bad king. He was a king that wanted to know the way. He was a king that was at a point in his life very high and mighty. But things slipped away from him. He made some poor choices. He really didn't seek God for who God is. There were moments where he wanted to seek God for, to make him the God that he wanted him to be. To fashion God into what he needed. But he said, this will be my God. I'll go with what's here. I'll go with this earthly decision. I'll go with the power. And he ended up being a very bad king. You know the nation of Israel had lots of kings, and they all had bad, didn't they? We love David. We appreciate things about Saul. But every king fell short. And it sets up the verse that I want you to look at now. If you have an open Bible, that'd be great. We're going to put it on the screen. And I think everybody probably has heard this. Isaiah chapter 9 in verse 6. Church, let's read this together. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now this morning I would love for if you have an open Bible and you're a note taker to circle those two words, Everlasting Father. It struck me this week, I, I've known this verse, I've been able to quote it for many years. I'm not bragging, I'm just trying to make a point. But this verse, it's just curious, I've never studied it. I've never thought about why Jesus uh, would be referred to as the everlasting Father. I can't say uh, today that my study this week yielded perfect insight, but I think it yielded some rich insight that for a few moments I want to share with you. But you know, in the New Testament, Jesus was never referred to as the Father. That doesn't make sense, right? I mean, some of you are thinking, okay, I don't understand the Trinity. I've, I've, I've called people. I've looked online. Uh, maybe you've gone to seminary. Uh, I'm looking at a few seminary students uh, down front. I, I just don't know anybody in the room. Certainly there's people in the room smarter than me, not many, but probably a few. And nobody in here really can explain the Trinity, can you? We understand that there's one God. Deuteronomy 6, hear, O Israel. Hear what? Hear that there is one God and one Lord. And the scripture never deviates from the fact. Uh, it. It's not a polyistic faith. We, it's monolithic. We, we, we worship one God, but he's a triune God. And we're introduced to a word that's not used in Scripture, but that is uh, mentioned and taught, and that is this one God in Trinity. Uh, we, when we call you into community, when we say get in a group, mentor, uh, young men, seek out uh, older men to mentor you. Same thing with women, like it says in Titus. We talked about a couple of weeks ago. Uh, draw yourself into community and it starts at the trinity our one god there there is community within the trinity can i explain it all no do some of you want to meet for coffee later that'd be great but it's hard to explain but the scripture teaches it and i've come to elevate it in my thinking to be grateful for it more and more 
But Jesus in the New Testament is never, ever referred to as the Father, but he is here. Anybody know why? The everlasting Father. And it's confusing if I think of this in light of the Trinity. Father, there's the Father. Jesus isn't the Father. The Father is the Father. Jesus is the Son, and there is the Spirit. Bible teacher Francis Chan calls the Holy Spirit, that part of the Trinity, the forgotten God, because we're either freaked out by him or just don't understand about him, or he's banished from our church. There's no welcome mat for the Holy Spirit to do a work in our congregation. I, for one, don't want to lead a church like that. Anybody want to be in a church like that? I, I, I get calls and I sit down. Some of you uh, have a charismatic background and, and you have gifts in your life. And man, I want all the manifestations of the Holy Spirit in our church family. I'm going to tell you that. I want to lead our church and I believe what Paul teaches in Corinthians to the church at Corinth who had an abuse of gifts. That there's order and there's peace and I will always lead a church like that. I'm convinced of it. But I, whatever God has for us, man, I want the Spirit to work. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I, for one, have been reminded this week of sin in my life. And I'm grateful of 1 John. Um, that that, that uh, disciple, by the way, talks a lot about Jesus as the Son and the Father. And he says that uh, the Jesus, the Son, is an advocate for us. That he, he is at the right hand of the Father. He, he's taken care of your sin. Jesus paid the price for your sin. And he's at the hand of the Father. But wait a second, Isaiah... I mean, we get Jeremiah might be a little whack, right? Because his name is Jeremiah. Like he might be kind of like a bullfrog or something. But Isaiah, what do you mean? What are you saying? Everlasting Father. So it confuses us if we think about it with a trinity. And here's how I've looked at it. In the New Testament, Jesus is never referred to as the Father. I've said that. He's always addressed as the Son, and he always addresses God as the Father. I sort of hit on this, but in the Gospel of John, uh, he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He says, I and the Father are one. 75 times, 75 times in that gospel alone, he says, the Father. The key to understanding this piece is this, that when Isaiah talks about is not God the Father and God the Son as they relate to one another, listen, but how Jesus the Son would relate to us. So for a few moments... I want to talk to you this morning in this Christmas season about the everlasting Father. We all have fathers or we've lost a father or we think about a father that we didn't have. No matter your story today, a lot of it depends on your age, but no matter your story today about your father, I know this, there's some father thing going on in everybody. We have counselors in our church. I don't know how many of them are here today, but they know a lot more than me. But there's a, there's a daddy thing in all of us. And I said it a couple of weeks ago when we were in Ecclesiastes. And Solomon says, remove vexation from your heart. Remember the creator of your youth, but remove vexation. Deal with the things that worry you, young people. And I mean, a lot of young people just don't do that. They never get deep with their issues of their daddy things or whatever. And have you noticed those who don't deal with their daddy issues, they bring it out? It comes out in their marriage. You know, you ever have an issue with somebody? Sometimes you're having an issue with somebody and they hadn't, they hadn't dealt with their daddy issues. And they got their daddy issues on you. Too deep this morning? Yeah, let's move on. <laughs> a few things. I want to give you four dads. The first is what I would call always could be better father. 
That's uh, I always could be better. You could always be better. This is a, a father, and you're sure or you're not sure if you can ever really satisfy him. If you score 10 points in a game, he thinks you ought to score 20. If you come home with a B, he's thinking you should have had an A. Incidentally, when I was little and I came home with a B, my folks would take me to Shoney's to celebrate, you know. But I'm just, I'm different than some of you. But with this kind of dad, listen, you never know if you've done enough. Now, some of you may be rolling your eyes, you may be thinking, mm, how, much more, how many more minutes do we have here? But I think this is important for some of you. I really do. With this kind of dad, you've never known if you've done enough. You always feel like you have something to prove, and then you project that back to God. And that's not Jesus, the everlasting Father, who wants to relate to you in that way. There's not only an always could be better father, there is an angry father. This needs little explanation, but as I was praying and writing it out this week, here's how I said this. This father's like a bomb ready to explode. You never know what to say, how to say things. At any moment, his wrath could release. Your father tore you down with painful words. What's the result of that? You live in fear of him. You withdraw. You walk on eggshells. You don't trust him. You distance yourself from him. Here's where it gets a little more profound. We do whatever we can to make him happy. Not because we love him, but because we're afraid of him. We project that back onto God. We feel like our action or inaction is, a lot, is like lighting a fuse on God's wrath over us. We begin to withdraw from him. We resent him, we don't trust him, but we feel distant anger. So you do whatever you can to keep him from uncorking a can on you. I talked to another pastor this week. We sat down and had a real heart-to-heart. It went for hours. I had to call some of our staff and say, I won't be at this meeting, but I think I need to be here. And this came up. Third father that I've thought about this week is an absent father. Maybe your father was never part of your life. Maybe your father uh, rarely came to your games. And listen, he never had a meaningful conversation with you. And maybe I'm harping on this too much this month, this season. But with our technology and everything, that reality is becoming real. It's getting harder to have meaningful conversations. Have you noticed? And dads, dads don't watch Oprah and stuff, right? Dads aren't watching some of the things that you're engaged in. They're not reading the five love languages, not, not a lot. I mean, when guys come to see me as husbands, as fathers, I mean, it's, you know, they take the, love, the five love languages. They're like on the floor. They're fetal, man. They've, they're like, is there any hope here? You know, and you wonder, is it, is it too late? But some of you have had dads, never a meaningful conversation. Look, I'm, I'm with you. you know, y'all know I'm a dad. I'm probably guilty of talking about my kids too much. I love them. Anybody ever doubted that? Man, I love my kids. I, I, I like gush on them. I mean, it's like I'm, I'm telling my 16-year-old, hey, a, a father to son, we're never too old to hug each other. Come here, as he's running away. Come here, give me a hug. Come here. Come here. Son, son, come here. Come back, son. But, man, I'm learning. I still remember that age with my daughter when uh, she started giving me uh, one 
word answers. How was your day, honey? Again. What was the highlight? Yeah, none. What was the low light? Yeah, somebody pushed me. Somebody pushed you? What's that? Who pushed you? Dad's coming to school tomorrow. Tomorrow I'm dressing up like a third grader, and we'll find out who pushed you. I'm going to go Billy Ray Madison. Anybody remember that movie? Probably not. Okay. We'll play dodgeball. Yeah. But I'm learning how to have meaningful conversation, you know, how to go beyond it. Some of you have a dad, and that's it. One word grunts at best. There's a fourth kind of dad as we round toward home, and that's what I want to call simply an awesome dad. Backing up a bit, I do say, you've heard me say it before, I live my life, and I think every day I think of this, I want my kids to be glad I'm their dad. If I think of straying or bringing shame or embarrassment, if, if I'm tempted or I, I, I'm tempted to do something, I think, you know, would this make my kids proud? I can't make that a God, by the way, because there's going to come a time when all three of them are like, right? I can't make that my God. There's that prodigal thing in Luke 15, right? I can't make it my God. But I want, to be, I want them to be glad that I'm their dad. There's an awesome dad. And with this dad... You know that you can't do anything to earn his love. But it doesn't mean that he doesn't discipline us. There's a difference between discipline and punishment. Several years ago when we were in Dueling Hall, we did a series called The Fatherless Generation. A lot of you remember that. In fact, Emily Hood is our full-time children's minister right now, and she came as a young Teach for... She's still young. She came uh, a couple years ago as a Teach for America young lady from California, and she walked into our church, and we were doing a series on the fatherless generation. She was... It was pretty apparent the preacher ain't very good, but I like what he's talking about. And here is this church here in Fondren, and we're talking about the fatherless generation. I want to be involved in something like this. I remember as I preached through that series that God one day took me to Hebrews chapter 12, and some of you know this passage where it says that God's love for us, it really is demonstrated in the fact that he disciplines us. If he loves you, he disciplines you. If he doesn't love you. Now, punishment is different than discipline. Do you know the difference? Turn to the person next to you and tell what's the difference between punishment and discipline. No, don't do that. That's too much. Punishment is God dealing with sin. I, for one, don't want to lead a church where we don't talk about God's wrath. Troubling? Sure. Don't you want to subtract some of those elements that might seem objectionable and soften God into our image? That'd be a lot easier, right? I could sell books that way. But God has wrath and we have sin. Ferguson, Brooklyn, good gracious, Panola County. Open up and look around. Sin is very real. And I, for one, I want God's justice. Now, my heart is dark and sometimes I want God's justice for you and his mercy for me, right? But God's justice is is very real, and God's punishment, it's a, it's a reality. And I don't go hell, fire, and brimstone, but I'm just telling you, we all will give account of ourselves. Daniel Webster, who wrote the dictionary, compiled the dictionary is probably a better way to say it. 
said, the greatest thought that a man or woman can entertain is their accountability to God. And God deals with sin. He punishes it. If you don't think sin is much of a reality, I read this from a friend yesterday on Twitter. He posted 140 words or less, letters or less. If you need proof of human depravity, just read the comments section on any blog post. I want to ask you something. Have you done that recently? And I want to ask you a follow-up question if you have. Some of you are shaking your heads. Do you want to just go get in the shower and just wash off after that and maybe go hug somebody? It's ugly. And it doesn't matter the post. In fact, angry Christians can be the worst. And here's what I want to say to you this morning. We tear, we bite, we devour, we spit, and we spew. We exalt ourselves by belittling others. We make more of us by mocking other people. We act like we're the ruler and arbiter of justice with our opinions. And in a world that needs love, we subtract from it. Yeah, we do. Some of you have disappointed me with some of your posts related to Ferguson. Oh, my goodness, I didn't want to go there but I feel like I should. I'm not going to get political, but I'm just telling you God is on the side of those who are least and last and marginalized. And be careful as you post things from your perch of privilege. All right? Maybe you disagree. Maybe you're, you, you, you think I'm going somewhere that I'm probably not. I'm available. Well, not this week, but sometime in the 2015 into the second or third week of 2015. Probably not then. We're starting small groups and stuff, and then we got that thing and then that other thing. So in February, after the Super Bowl, I'd love to follow up with you. (laughs) And here are your thoughts on that. If you thought I overreached. Galatians 5 tells us not to bite and devour one another. Now, a lot of you know, we got a golden retriever a couple years ago, and for more than a year, it was like, don't bite, don't bite. That's when the biting hurt. It hurt bad. Sometimes there was blood, but we still got that dog, and it's a gentle bite. It's a, he, he understands it, and some of us, I'm telling you, we got to be careful how we relate to one another, and I'm among the most guilty. But here's the great thing that I love about my father is that he doesn't punish me. Do you know the gospel? The gospel is that Jesus took my punishment. Discipline is available for me. And I want it and I don't, right? You want it and you don't. But it shows me that he loves me. Discipline is when God gets out his surgical knife and corrects the things in you for your good. Now let me ask you, would I want a man sticking a knife in my chest? The answer is, it depends. Right? I mean, if he's coming after me to murder, I'm going to say no. Got a lot to live for, two of them are sitting on the front row. I'm going to say no on that whole knife in the chest to murder me thing. But if it's a doctor with a scalpel, and open-heart surgery to correct something in me, I'm going to say yes. And that's God's discipline. 
That's God's discipline, and yes, it is his love. In Christ Jesus, he took our penalty. Jesus took the knife of God's judgment so I could get the scalpel of healing. This week, uh, I ran with two guys, older guys, older than me, so they're really old. And both guys, there were, uh, there were three guys there, two played college football. Not me. And we went for a run. And one of them was talking about, they, they said, we were talking about this very subject, and they said, you know, Robert, it's like when you played football in college. I said, yeah, I guess I've read books about it. He says, when your coach gets on you, there's a reason. When your coach rides you, and maybe even uh, you think berates you, it's because he believes in you. He sees something in you, and so he gets after you. If he doesn't, he doesn't. That's why all my career I had to say, hey, coach, how am I doing? You're doing fine, Green. Is that your name? What do I do, coach? Oh, oh, uh, green? Yeah, just um, go long, real long, and just kind of run around over there. Right? God sees something in you. So, some of the pain in your life now could be surgery from a loving father who sees something in you. And the pain that he brings in your life now could be real helpful. I'm not telling you how to feel. I'm not telling you you can't rail against it. You'd be surprised at how many honest conversations I have with God. Some of it's about you. But he always takes me back to me. Because Jesus taught in Matthew 7 that I need to be careful judging you. Because when I judge you, I forget things about me. And there's just too much in me. I am probably better than you, but let's move on. Discipline is not God taking away your joy. It's God taking from you the thing that will kill you. The scripture says his banner over you is love. And maybe today there's this angry father thing that you're putting on him. Or maybe today there's this absent thing. You know, I've got a friend who, uh, hear me now, he thinks God has forgotten him. And guys can't talk about their feelings very easily. But he thinks God has forgotten him. He's getting older and he's single. And I know, I know a little bit of that. I wasn't married right out of college, I, it, several years into this. And I, I remember a little bit of that feeling, thinking God um, has forgotten me too. He, he told me recently there's some folks that they just seem to say uh, patronizing things. Now, everybody who's single who's getting older has to, has to kind of ask the question. You don't, talk, you don't say it out loud, but inside you're wondering, am I single for a season or am I single for a reason? And this guy's wondering that. And he says the comments just seem to be like behind his back. What's wrong with him? They're patronizing, condescending comments. There's a couple of uh, ladies in his church where at the last couple of weddings, they've come up to him and hugged him and said, don't worry, honey, you're next. And I told him, hey, just wait for a funeral and come up and hug them and say, don't worry, honey, you're next. (laughs) But today, there is that forgotten feeling for some of you. And I just have a couple of minutes, but I would say this father, everlasting father, is one who doesn't leave or forsake. I'm going to close with a story. Honestly, I don't know these folks, but I read about them. It's about a beautiful picture that the scripture gives us so many times over. 
A few months ago, a court declared Charlie a Davis. He's Ryan and Morgan's son now. Instead of growing up in an orphanage, he'll grow up in a home with a daddy and mommy who love him, a brother and sister who spoil him, and he'll be friends with more people who have prayed for him than he can possibly count. But because of some governmental glitches, Charlie can't leave the country for now. What has been promised has not yet been realized. Home is still a foreign concept, both figuratively and geographically. For the foreseeable future, Charlie is, for all practical purposes, stuck. But while Charlie can't come to his mom and dad, his mom and dad can go to him. And go to him they did. A couple of weeks ago, Ryan and Morgan made their rather sudden decision to temporarily leave Texas and head to Africa. The son that is theirs is still there, and so it makes no sense for them to be here. They decided that the uphill journey would be more effective if they were on the ground and close to Charlie. And so armed with nothing but a folder full of documents and a heart full of fire, Ryan and Morgan boarded a flight and promised to fight, to fight to get him. I wonder if he realizes that before he knew he needed these parents, these parents knew he needed them, and they were willing to do whatever it took to bring him home. I wonder if he'll ever realize the sacrifice they made to leave a country while pursuing a child in another. Will he know the sleepless nights they endured, the hundreds of times they looked at his picture, the thousands of times their arms ached for the baby that belonged there? As Charlie snuggles up to his parents at a tiny bungalow, does he know what awaits him on the other side of his journey? Can he fathom what it will be like to spend his life being pursued, known, and loved? Can his little mind begin to imagine what life in his daddy's house will hold for him? Does that little boy know that he's been given a new name, that he possesses a new identity, that he's forever protected and completely provided for, that everything Ryan and Morgan call theirs can now be called his? Later this week, Morgan will begin the journey back to America. You can imagine that it will be one of the hardest goodbyes she'll ever say. But as she reunites with her two oldest children here in Texas, Ryan will remain with their youngest on another continent, and he'll fight. He'll leave no stone unturned and no door unopened as he looks for the right connection, the right answer, just the right approval to rightfully claim his son and join the family that awaits him. He won't come home until Charlie comes with him, a father who fights. That's what Ryan is for Charlie, and that's what God is for us. We're in the middle of a season where we celebrate the one who left his home and went to a foreign land. What he didn't have to do, he chose to do. He sent his son to become one of us, to live among us, to come to our turf, dwell in our land, fight on our behalf before we knew we were orphans. Jesus knew we needed a father, and the father knew that we couldn't get to him on our own. And some of you have thought that, and you have thought that, and you're falling short. And what a great day today to just say, he can do for me what I can't do for myself. So we fought, Jesus came, God wrapped himself in flesh and lived with us so we could live with him. With us, God with us, Emmanuel. He fought for us then, but listen, he fights for us now. You see, Christmas isn't just a reminder of what Jesus did. It's a reminder of what he is doing, how he still fights, how he still pursues, how he still does whatever it takes to bring us home, to give us a new name and identity and help us to see our Father. Topher and the team are going to come pray with us.